I'm Christian Walmart, and welcome to episode 10 of Calling All Stations, the podcast that keeps you up to date with the transport issues in the news. And with me is Mark Walker of Cogitamas. We've got quite a lot to discuss today, Mark, haven't we? As ever, Christian, we have a number of big issues uh, that have developed over recent days. We're going to look at the UK government's announcement on rescheduling work on the construction of the high-speed rail line HS2. We're also going to take a, a look at bus reform proposals and how the legislation works in Great Britain to regulate or not the, right, the bus industry uh, at present. Uh, there are also big developments in a recovering post-pandemic civil aviation sector And then finally, we'll look at what happened or perhaps didn't happen in the UK Chancellor of the Exchequer's budget in relation to fuel duty. Right. Well, let's start with HS2, Mark. And it's difficult to say this is not just, and difficult not to use rude words, actually, but it starts with cluster. Um, And uh, I just, you know, I've always been an opponent of this. Um, but I wouldn't wish uh, what's happening on my worst enemy, actually, because it, 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 it's being cut kind of in every possible way. It's been delayed. Um, it's now probably not going to... I mean, to be honest, I'm, I'm 73, Mark. I, I'm not going to travel on this, I don't think, ever, because it, it, they're talking of 2040, 2045. I'll be in my 90s. You'll go on forever and ever. <laughs> I hope I'm so. Sure. But, uh, you know, it's touch and go whether I'll, I'll get on that first train. And so I think, first of all, I want to, I want to explain a little bit about where I feel it's gone wrong. Um, and, you know, this is a project that, you know, has been on the go since 2009, right? That's 14 years. And now it seems to be about another 10 to 12 years before we're going to see uh, any rail travel on it at all. So 35 years of uh, gestation of the project. And I think the mistakes were made right from the beginning. I think there was never any real understanding of what this project was for. You know, what, what, what was his unique selling point? Um, I wrote a letter in the Times uh, uh, just a few days ago, basically saying, well, you know, it didn't have a unique selling point, And now it doesn't seem to have a selling point at all. And they started off saying high speed rail, you know, we're going to buzz you to Birmingham and, and Manchester very quickly. And then they realized that that wasn't really a selling point. So then they decided that it was capacity, which indeed it will increase capacity, but uh, only on a kind of very small number of, of kind of journeys. Um, and then they get into the idea, oh, this is a leveling up project and we'll bring the north closer to the south. Um, and then now we seem to be in a situation where they're basically saying, well, we can't stop now. Um, we've got all these uh, bits of embankment and bits of tunnel dug in the Chilterns and uh, we can't leave that for the rats. So um, it, it, it leaves the project in, in a bit of a mess. I know you've always been a sceptic, really, about HS2. I've probably put myself with with doubts and criticisms, but broadly on the other side of the argument, that I've always seen it as something which is essentially good. And perhaps at the very beginning, 
my view was quite a simplistic one, that if a government was spent prepared to spend billions of pounds on a, a, a rail improvement in Great Britain, then we ought to just take it and almost worry later about what the purpose uh, was. Because for so many decades, the railways were starved of investment. And here in at the end of the, of the 2010s, uh, the, 20, the, the, the noughties actually, right. and into the 2010s, was this huge uh, voter confidence in rail as a, as a transport mode. So, so I always took some comfort from that. But you'd, I'd have to agree with you that uh, the case uh, has never been overwhelmingly and convincingly made in this country for the project by successive governments of, of different political persuasions to the extent that what should be uh, uh, something that we take enormous national pride in is is kind of it's permanently open season really isn't it it's shrouded in embarrassment to, instead yes and i and i and i find that i find that baffling i find uh, as, as a lay person in a sense why the numbers are always wrong even though the numbers are calculated by clever people and checked by other clever people and maybe even a third layer of clever people but the numbers always seem to be wrong um, and I think that what that does is it provides the ammunition always to the skeptics to say no let's not do it let's not finish it completely let's let's lock pieces off of it um, which seems to be almost the um, the process of salami slicing that's going on, having lost the eastern leg to Leeds, um, and now the, uh, the the curtailment, at least in delivery, as far as crew and in- incredibly curtailment between Old Oak Common and and London Euston. Even though I walked past Euston the other day, and it's a building, it's, it's a wasteland. No, I take no, I take no, I take your points. But you know what we're left with, Mark, and this is what I'm really worried about is, you know, another line between not even Euston, as you say, Old Oak Common and Birmingham. And and there are even some doubts about whether they're going to continue with the junction at this stage, whether they're going to co- continue with the junction up to Hansacre, then that allows them to connect uh, back onto the, the West Coast uh, mainline. They might not even include that in, in the kind of early sections. So, look, I take your point. It's a great that the railways are getting all this investment rather uh, than uh, the roads or, or whatever. But to counter that point, I would say this. I remember talking uh, in in the early days to you know, uh, a great supporter of the scheme, Jim Steer, um, who actually you know really worked behind the scenes with Green Gauge Twenty One, kind of pushing did, pushing this. Yes, and I remember him saying, "Oh, you know, it's you know." I said, "Well, what about fares? You know, what about fares going to be?" He said, "Oh, no, no, the fares will be the same." I said, "Well, what about taking investment away from the rest of the rail industry?" He said, "No, no, no, no. You know, it is separate. You know, it, it's absolutely separate." And the supporters still argue this. I mean, when I get criticised on Twitter for being against it, they say, "Oh, this is just money that you know will uh, uh, will otherwise not be spent, and it's extra." Neither of these arguments actually stand up. I mean, the fares clearly are going to be higher than on the existing uh, uh, network. They already are on HS1. Um, one, you know, there's a £3 premium for every but journey. I'd, I'd, actually, I'd actually challenge that, look, okay. Christian, because as you say, it's a very long way from opening. And any government can create any fares policy 
strategy on pricing that it wishes to, depending on the balance it chooses to strike between fair paying income and taxpayer support for a, for a public transport system. So I don't think it automatically follows okay. that fares will be high. Okay, but I, I think it's very unlikely that the Treasury, after spending $100 billion or whatever it's going to be, uh, would then say, oh, no, you can have nice cheap fares on this, on this line. I know in France, actually, they have a brilliant system whereby they created two competing services. So you have the main kind of TGV service, and they have WeGo, um, which which actually is kind of a budget railway using sort of different trains and cramming you in a bit more and not allowing you to take so much luggage and so on, much cheaper. So it is, it is feasible, but I can't see us having the imagination uh, to do that. And the second point that uh, Jim Steer, I think, are made about the fact that it's not pinching money off the rest of the railways. Uh, I think you can't argue with, Mark. I challenge you to argue against that because it is clear that politically, there's a, when, when the, the people see all this money going on the railways and then they get asked to uh, fund kind of other, what I would say, more worthwhile schemes, they will say, oh, well, look, there's all this money going on the railways. I mean, the, the railways, it was admitted in Parliament the other day that it, it, it's £120 million a week. It's £6 billion a year, a year is being spent on building this line that, you know, quite a lot of us are never going to get a chance to ride on. And a lot of people in Wales, in uh, East Anglia, in Cornwall, in all sorts of places are not going to benefit from at all. And I think I would, far from argue for salami slicing <laughs> the route, I'd argue for a bigger HS2 and I'd actually argue for more HS2 and in fact one of my hopes from the uh, Union Connectivity Review was that the case might have been made actually to build HS2 in time all the way to Scotland uh, and, and for other extensions from it as indeed happened with the TGV network in France because I'm sure I'm right in saying that once the first TGV line opened and the scepticism was overcome communities started to clamour to be part of the TGV network. Yes, Mark, but, you know, one has to think the price of this. I, I mean, the, the, the price per mile uh, in France is something like, I, th I think, uh, 40 million, and, and the price per mile in the UK seems about five times that or something. And, and, and that's partly know. because of the system that we have for objectors, so that so much of it has to yeah. go into very expensive tunnels instead of... Going up and down. Well, they could have said no to that. They could have, and that was my other criticism of the whole project. You know that it's never had a proper project manager. You know, within the government, you know, I think a project manager has to be a, a kind of state actor, as it were, kind of saying, right, we're going to do this and we're going to push this through. And actually, these objections are spurious. I, I you know, I, I think we've never had that. And just as a last point, go on the HS2 website and look up the minutes of the board meetings, right? And you'll find that they basically, beyond saying, you know, oh, we've had a very nice meeting and, and welcome to so-and-so, um, they redact all the kind of detailed information that you might want to kind of find out about it. There's actually, there's whole sections that are completely redacted, so you don't even know what the sections are about. Well, that's a really interesting point, and I'm sure some of our <laughs> listeners will be doing that very thing right now.
People are always amazed when I point out that there are something like four to five times as many journeys made by bus in this country per year as there are by train. And the bus is an incredibly important part of our transport system. But there are some ideas around for reform, Christian. Uh, yes, I, I must say that you know, Labour, when it was in power, uh, for uh, between 1997 and 2010, really missed out on bus reform. I mean, the, the, the bus system that was created after deregulation and selling off the National Bus Company in the mid-80s was really a mess. And yet, over the uh, period of 13 years of their rule, they introduced sort of legislation, but it was so difficult to get around uh, how to do it that uh, none of the bus uh, areas that they hoped would sort of renationalize or f end up franchising managed to do it. And oddly enough, it's been the Tories who've actually passed legislation that allowed the uh, areas, like Manchester being the first one, to uh, take over their buses and franchise them out, which, uh, you know, seems a a, a great sensible compromise between the public and the uh, private sectors. And now Louise Haig, who is uh, Labour's transport uh, spokesperson, has uh, rightly got in on the act. And uh, in, a, in a little reported uh, visit up to Newcastle, a speech there, she said that, uh, you know, bus reform is going to be uh, uh, high uh, on their agenda. And that uh, a Apparently, they want to pretty much reverse the idea that only private companies can uh, run buses and they're going to encourage uh, local authorities uh, to recreate uh, local uh, bus services um, and quite possibly run them themselves. Now, you might remember all this, uh, Mark, but in the uh, mid-1980s, as I mentioned, uh, the, the bus companies were broken up and the municipal bus companies were mostly taken over by the big company like Stagecoach and Arriva. And of course, what started off as, you know, hot foot competition where I remember that Nicholas Ridley, the transport secretary at the time, said, oh, we want, you know, owner, owner, owner drivers who are going to compete with each other on different bus routes and, and, you know, race around. And we had this terrible period where there were awful buses kind of running everywhere and so on. And that all settled down to essentially monopolies in most places or duopolies at best uh, in some. So, uh, and some municipal bus uh, companies survived, I think, didn't they? There are a handful in uh, across the country. I mean, but some of them actually quite large operations now, such as Lothian buses in Scotland and uh, Cardiff bus in the the city of of the same name, uh, and, uh, and and Reading is regarded as a very successful operator. I could list them all, but right, I won't. but they have. But, but what's <laughs> interesting, of course, is that often these are the most successful. But they they win awards in bus. They do. Uh, in, in, in bus kind of... Uh, they, uh, tend to have, they tend to have modern fleets, increasingly yeah. electric vehicles, and uh, to the extent that they're allowed to, within the constraints of the law, they have a view about integration with other transport modes. Yes, but you're is, not quite allowed to do that, are no, you? No, yes, no, no. You but, have to be... All of these uh, municipally-owned 
companies have to operate as if they were private companies at right. arm's length with from the the local authorities. And you have this ridiculous situation where you might have two different bus apps and two different cards to use the local buses and and all this stuff. And now hopefully uh, Louis Haig's kind of reforms would uh, do away with that. Now, of course, there is always, always a question mark over these sort of uh, political uh, statements, which is money. Um, You know, would, uh, you know, one of of the real ways in which... uh, the bus companies have been cut back is you know through through lack of subsidy and the lack of subsidy has been because local authorities are squeezed in all sorts of ways and haven't been able to subsidize and of course you know that's a way of putting the owners from the social to the private so people who can't use uh, a bus service because it's gone have to then buy a car and they have to kind of spend all that money on buying a car and uh, you know you end up being in, like in America, where many towns don't have any sort of uh, public service at all. So if you want a job, you have to drive. And and that's the situation, I mean, possibly where you live, Peterborough. Peterborough. I mean, that's situation there. I'm sure many people have to drive because there isn't adequate bus service. Certainly that's something that, that I observe in a, in a medium-sized city that uh, and, and one where actually the road infrastructure is, is quite good. So there's a further kind of encouragement there to use personal transport. But of course, if we track bus deregulation back to the 1980s, that was at a time when owning a car was seen as a sign of success and and achievement and being upwardly mobile. And and why would anybody want to use a bus? Yes, Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher famously used to say, you know, you're a loser if you travel by bus. That's right. Whereas now with with the the increasing emphasis on uh, social inclusion, on people being able to get to work, and, and crucially, of course, on reducing carbon emissions, the bus has an incredibly important role to play but just like with other forms of public transport people want a reliable service that turns up when it's supposed to that is available for most of the day uh, and is affordable well the fact that the Tories have actually taken this up and uh, and and allowed Manchester to to take uh, franchise out its buses is I think interesting now what Labour needs to go do is go a bit further and kind of uh, actually put some money into this ensure that the legislation is right, be a bit brave, do this right at the beginning of uh, their term of office so that you know this can bed in quickly, and it will make a difference to a lot of people's lives. And I think other metro mayors in particular in England uh, have been given the powers and the, at least the opportunity to take forward these kind of um, franchised and, and regulated systems. So we may see the return of the bus in a really positive way. That would be that would be great news. And as you say, good for the environment, good for people getting around, good, of course, for older people who can no longer drive but have a bus pass and so on. So um, let's hope that uh, Louise Haig's uh, commitment to this is strong and that she will push through uh, these types of changes. Calling All Stations is going international now because we have a really big civil aviation story from India. Yes, and it's actually the biggest airline order ever, aircraft order. Uh, Air India has ordered 460 planes, about half from Boeing and half from Airbus. So that's very interesting. Air India has actually launched 
the biggest order ever for uh, aircraft, uh, 460 uh, new planes, split pretty much equally between Airbus and Boeing, who are really the only two major sources of, uh, of, of, uh, of aircraft in the world left. And that's interesting in itself because it shows that they want to keep balance between Europe, which builds Airbus, and we still have a big involvement in that, of course, with big factory making the wings in in, uh, in Wales, um, and uh, and the and the US, where Boeing, of course, has recovered from uh, its disasters over its uh, uh, new plane, which um, you know led to two crashes and led to the whole uh, fleet being. Uh, uh, grounded for uh, more than two years um, and they're now selling that same uh, aircraft which I actually flew in once before before really? the accidents yes I flew oddly enough I, I took a plane from Casablanca to Paris once and it was in this brand new uh, 737 not realizing that this aircraft was uh, the dodgy one anyway that's beside the point and so India is is interesting. I mean, first of all, a lot of these planes are for its domestic uh, fleet, um, and of course, India is big enough to you know fly people around. I've flown on domestic flights in in India, but it does show that it's a you know great rival to the railways in India, where the railways you know have been the mainstay of domestic travel for a long time, and now face the twin competitions of the roads. Gradually, and I, I've been to India a couple of years ago, and it's still gradual improvement on the roads. And of course, uh, then uh, the fact that aviation you know, does get you round between, you know, say, uh, you know, Delhi and Chennai rather more quickly than a train which takes 24 hours. So, um, you know, you can see uh, where they're going. India is very much changing uh, rapidly, actually. It's, it's, you know, it, it sees China as the example. Um, so it is building some high-speed uh, rail, but it sees China with all its technology and all its uh, uh, development as, as the one it wants to follow. And, and it is radically changing uh, before our eyes. So, but what's interesting about this in transport terms, of course, is that it also shows that there is a great post-COVID uh, recovery in in aviation, and I think aviation suffered, you know, badly because you know if you have got a dangerous disease going around, the last thing you want is to uh, travel in an enclosed space for several hours with people who might have that disease, and so uh, they lost out. They've still lost out to some extent. They got bailed out to an enormous extent, um, but I think this this massive order shows uh, great confidence in uh, back in aviation. I think it's fair to say that we, we talked in an, in an earlier episode about the the myth, if you like, of um, sustainable aviation fuel and how difficult that will be to realise. But certainly newer planes are going to be less emitting, even using conventional fossil fuels, than older aircraft. So that must be good news. Uh, and, of course, quite a lot of the engines for these fleets are to be built in the UK. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Richie Sunak uh, said that uh, something like 450 jobs would be created uh, in the UK uh, thanks to this. Might have been a lot more if we hadn't had Brexit, but we won't go there. Um, and uh, so I take your point that, uh, yes, the, the, the planes will be 
uh, more fuel efficient as uh, you know every model is but there's no doubting uh, that aviation is uh, you know a real no no in terms of uh, sustainability and um, you know every flight that will take off as i suggest between chennai and delhi rather than the plane uh, rather than the train uh, is you know going to be uh, more greenhouse gases um, and uh, you know more more pollution around the airports and and so on. Uh, so yes, one can view it as kind of modernisation. I do think that most of all, what it's showing is is uh, India's ambition to be a, a sort of big regional power to emulate China in terms of uh, growth, um, and also uh, you know to show uh, that it's you know wants to be friends with. Uh, uh, Europe and with the United States. Very interesting, that balancing uh, the order. So, uh, you know, watch this space and see uh, what uh, kind of actually emerges. Here's Christian's thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, Mark, here we go again. We had thought that just possibly given uh, the state of uh, the finances, we might have got a fuel duty uh, increase. But no, uh, as, you know, one of the perennial promises, which has gone on for 15 years now, uh, no fuel uh, duty increase uh, in the budget. And indeed, what's really depressing about this, uh, you know, as a, a Labour supporter, is that this was also endorsed by uh, Rachel Reeves, the shadow chancellor, who said before the budget that uh, Jeremy Hunt must not kind of tax the motorists more and uh, therefore uh, they should uh, leave the fuel duty level uh, unchanged. And this is you know, in the context of a world where we're trying to move towards net zero, we're trying to be more sustainable, we're trying to do kind of uh, all these things. And also we saw that uh, the Tory government has also cut uh, the figure is unclear, but at least a couple of hundred million from the active travel budget, which uh, I'm sure you know is about getting more people cycling and walking and kind of uh, making uh, junctions safer and, and, and all that. And they've cut that, but uh, they uh, you know, have found the money to ensure that uh, they leave fuel duty the same. It's just... You know, there's some aspects sometimes of, of writing about transport which are really depressing because this is same old, same old, and uh, we've been here before. We know what the arguments are, and nobody is listening. Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Kogitamas Limited production. If you've liked what you've heard, do give us a five star rating on whichever podcast platform you use.